Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation, news, and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording the show on Monday, October 14, 2019. Mr. Taylor is just back from Florida. You can smell that monorail smell. It's still coming off of him at this point. It's Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And you got to ride a monorail, right? Uh, you didn't get to ride a... I rode a monorail. I did not get to ride the Skyliner, and I did not get... I wanted a Skyliner Christmas ornament so bad, but they were they were out of them at the store at uh, Hollywood Studios. Oh, so. man. Yeah. Okay. Well, all right. Maybe some kind listener will help you out there. But And the night you had designated to go over and see... Epcot Forever. They had technical difficulties. So that's a they had technical. Yeah, they kept saying it will be. It's delayed. It's delayed. It's delayed. So about an hour after it was supposed to start, I said, "You know what? I'll watch the YouTube video." <laughs> and I left, and and it ended up being canceled. Oh, so geez. you know, yeah, it was it was kind of a bummer, but okay. you know. But on the other hand, while you were down there in, in Orlando, you did get to sit down. Uh, this was your second time with the. The filmmakers for John Favreau's Lion King is that right? Or no, I, I don't. I didn't talk to anybody for Lion King when it was released theatrically. I don't, I'm not sure why, oh. but so this was my first chance that I got to talk to people from the Lion King. So that was really fun, mm-hmm. and I got to talk to Rob Delgado, who supervised the the visual effects on this and Jungle Book, and has worked on a number of Martin Scorsese movies, but not The Irishman. He did not do that. He did not de-age uh, Joe Pesci. Uh, okay. So. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I my understanding that that involved a lot of spackle. Right. <laughs> and you got Rob to kind of go on record about something that was very cool. He kept referring to the movie as being live action, you know, shooting it live action, this and that. And it's like, but it's not live action. It's it's completely animated. It's hand animated, no performance capture. And so I said, what, well, what are you saying about live, live action? That is just an aesthetic distinction of how the movie looks, correct? And he said, yes. So there you go. It's an animated movie with a live action aesthetic. And this is the official answer from the guy who did the VFX. So there you go. It's a Drew Taylor doing God's work. Okay. For us That's animation. Right. Book fans. closed. Yes. Okay. Yes. What's also cool about events like this is that they staged it inside of Animal Kingdom. Yes. We were sort of backstage in these kind of classrooms that I'm assuming are, are you know, when you do like educational tours or things like that. And that's where I was I was texting you because there was all this Discovery Island stuff. Yeah. What's fascinating about that is remember that Discovery Island, the actual island out in the middle of Bay Lake, they shut that down out ahead of the opening of Animal Kingdom back in April yeah. of 98. They then named the center of right. that park Discovery Island. Well, that's what I saw this map and it had Discovery Island on it. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. It's a map of the park. And then I looked at it and it had Bay Lake mm-hmm around it and that's when I realized oh this is all stuff from Discovery Island so there were tickets <laughs> there was the original like sign that welcomed you to Discovery Island it was it was pretty cool and being the honest soul that you are none of that made its way into a carry-on bag no and and not and no pictures either ah. I said backstage no pictures and I did not even take a picture I was such a good a good lad on this trip now speaking of backstage though you in addition to Interviewing the filmmakers and that sort of thing, you, you also got to see some cool animals too, right? Yes, we did the the uh, elephant kind of experience, which wasn't that great because you're so far away from the elephants. I mean, you're still like, you know, a while away from them. But then mm-hmm. later in the day, we got taken to the hyena cage, which going backstage at Animal Kingdom really is like 
going through Jurassic Park. I mean, the amount of gates and while we were walking up, there were these guys that were feeding crocodiles. Mm -hmm. So they were like throwing this stuff into the water. And what's really interesting is that the reason they do all these tricks with the animals is not to get them to like show off Mm -hmm. for guests, but actually to help when they have to like take blood Mm -hmm. or do certain medical procedures and the animals will just do them, you know, on command instead of fighting with a, thousand pound crocodile or whatever Mm -hmm. but we got to see the hyenas Mm -hmm. which were really amazing and really cute and you know i asked the the docents do you ever get tempted to want to pet them Mm -hmm. and you know they said no i don't i don't believe that though they were so cute Mm -hmm. i would at least think about wanting to pet them but but it was really cute because one of the docents said and you know this is just showing you how good they are at acting because in the lion king they're very scary but here they're very cute and cuddly which was, I thought it was pretty cute. That's so cool. Yeah. Initially, I thought you were talking about the wild dogs that had been added to the Kilimanjaro Safari. But no, these these are hyenas. These are hyenas. They are huge. But they also, yeah. both of them basically came in on exhibit around the same time when they... The nighttime safaris for Kilimanjaro? Yeah, the hyenas are more active at night, and the spotted dogs are more active at dusk. Mm-hmm. But they wanted to make sure that they had some activity at night. They don't get along, the two species, so they were sort of, like, cordoned off from each other. We saw the the dogs sort of coming in and mm-hmm. out. But it was really interesting because there are so many of those dogs, and there's only two hyenas, mm-hmm. and the, the female hyena is on birth control, oh. and the male hyena is, has a vasectomy. <laughs> so there are, there's no possibility of any more hyena coming to Animal Kingdom. Wow. But they are so cute, you want, like a dozen of them running around and, and laughing and whatever else. So these are, these are the interesting things I learned on my trip, Jim. Well, that's killer. That's killer. Wow. Well, the UPS truck rolled up the driveway. I have, I'm holding my hand, my copy of John Favreau's The Lion King, which I watch and we can discuss on our next show. And I was supposed to watch uh, all five episodes of Primal that ran on Adult Swim. And uh, likewise, Toy Story 4, and we'll discuss that in the second half of the show. But for now, just sort of pivot to the box office news and all that. So we're two weeks plus into Abominable being in theaters. And is it me or is it this one kind of running out of gas quick? 47 million stateside so far, just 62 million overseas for 109 million worldwide box office. That can't be good with $75 million production budget. Yeah, when we were that when we were there, we were there for the long lead day, mm-hmm. they said we think that we're gonna we're gonna be good until Frozen Two comes mm-hmm. out, and it's like, Ooh. okay, and well, yeah, now it's got to open in it's still got to open in a lot of territories around the world, but that got complicated just today, right? Yeah, so Abominable will not be was actually pulled uh, from screening in Vietnam because apparently there's. Obviously, Abominable is a co-production with with a Chinese studio, and they had to kind of bow to Chinese influence. Mm -hmm. But there's a scene where there's a map, and the map shows disputed areas like Taiwan and a couple of other countries as being controlled by China, where the actual countries are, are disputed, and there's a lot of back and forth about who actually is running these countries. But, yeah, it's it's sort of the latest example. There's been a lot of talk about the NBA mm. and ESPN's involvement in that whole thing with China. And, and let's not forget about South Park. <laughs> and now let's not forget about South Park, yes. It is such a strange 
business environment right now. Uh, that brings me to the next story, touching on DreamWorks Animation. And just last week, while, while Drew was away, they announced their two releases for 2021. We have The Bad Guys, which is it's a popular children's book. I look at the yeah. lineup here and it's just like, wow, I'm kind of looking at an animated Reservoir Dogs here. Right. That's kind of an interesting idea. And, you know, you've got the guys at Illuminations kind of calling the shots at what DreamWorks does these days. And Despicable Me proved to be, you know, very fertile turf. So it's like, okay, the bad guys, this is an interesting way to go. On the other hand, the other film that they announced for 2021 is really kind of a perfect example of how the media landscape has changed. It's the spirit writing free theatrical film. Untitled spirit writing free film is what it's currently being referred to. Yeah, yeah. and this isn't necessarily a sequel to Spirit Stallion of the Cimarron, the DreamWorks film that came out in May of 2002. This is actually a theatrical release spinoff from the Netflix series. Correct. DreamWorks Television animated series, uh, Spirit Riding Free. Uh, this only started being available for streaming on Netflix back in May of 2017. We are now up to season eight. In fact, season eight dropped on April 5th of this year, and a, a season nine is already slated to debut on Netflix in 2020. But this show evidently is so popular on Netflix and has such a strong core audience that Universal, getting this, this information from Netflix, decided that, okay, we're going to prep one of these, you know, a spinoff from this series for theatrical release, then pivot to this film will then be available at some point in the future to once again download from Netflix. And what's your take on this, Drew? There might be another DreamWorks uh, Netflix title to theatrical transition coming up soon. Because hmm. I've heard that that could be how the Troll Hunters 3 Below Wizards run ends, actually. Really? In a yeah, in a theatrical movie. So we will see if that actually ends up happening. Wow. But did you, did you see that? The bad guys ended up taking that the spot that was being held for Spooky Jack. Yeah. <laughs> Had you heard anything about Spooky Jack? No, I just thought it was interesting that it was supposed to be a uh, a Blumhouse co-production. Yes. Which was interesting. That's right. That's yeah. right. But the weird part is if when you think about Blumhouse and what they do for horror, and can you bring those two aesthetics together? Can you create something that has that special horror sheen and still work in animation. So yeah, maybe they need a little more time on that. You know, you didn't mention is the Onward trailer. Yeah, I was actually more intrigued about the reaction online about that and was a little concerned at the pushback. How is this film actually going to play to a child that's lost a parent? Okay. Yeah, I get what they're saying. and But at the same time, for me, it's tough to push back on a film with that being your concern when we've only seen two, two minutes of it. Maybe that's addressed in the storyline of the film, or it looked like what Pixar does best, the wonderfully observed detail and... You know, some funny writing and definitely want to circle back on this March of next year, right? Is that when it's dropping? Yes, March. Yeah. yeah. 
I thought I thought that trailer was really cool. Yeah. It was a lot better than the teaser and a lot better than the D23 footage they showed. Mm-hmm. That's the thing when you work at, at PR at a studio, you never honestly know when you're getting your film out there and promoting it, never really know what's suddenly going to turn around and bite you in the butt. And it's just sort of like, wow, I wouldn't have thought about that. Anything for you out of the trail that surprised you or? No, I mean, I just love seeing so much of it and getting a little bit better sense of that world Mm -hmm. and the kind of magic plus suburban sort of banality Mm -hmm. I thought was really cool. I thought the music they chose was really good. Yeah, I mean, it was the opposite of the Doolittle trailer, I'll tell you that. <laughs> uh, okay, let, let's only offend one studio at a time. <laughs> okay, okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Pivoting to other animation-related news, you and I have talked about the Adam family for the lead-up of, of this release, and when it opened over the Columbus Day weekend, it did so much better than anybody had anticipated. I mean, I guess the original projections were industry insiders, all right, it'll do 21 to 27. I think uh, Box Office Mojo actually went on the high side and was saying 29. And it ends up doing over 30. I think both you and I look at that and go, okay, that's cool. But, you know, here comes Maleficent Mistress of Evil uh, opening theaters this weekend. And that's going to be kind of a brick wall, isn't it? Because you get your family film audience. It's a, a you know, a sequel to a, a relatively popular film from five and six years back, coupled with the Halloween vibe. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious as well, especially because I think Maleficent is going to be a big, big hit. Mm. And it's really good, too. So, mm. you know. Okay. You know, the Adams Family actually dates all the way back to 1938. That's when Charles Adams did the very first set of, cart- or excuse me, single panel cartoon for The New Yorker that featured these characters. And then going forward, there were 150 cartoons that Adams did before, I want to say he passed away in 1988. In the very same week of time in 1964, The Adams Family debuts on ABC, and then later that same week, The Monsters debuts on CBS. And it's just sort of like, how is it that these two sort of black comedies featuring monstrous characters, television ex- executives in the 1960s, yes, exactly, that's what I want on television, you know, that's what I want on the family hour, Right. you know, bring those <laughs> characters in, but they don't run all that long. They only, the two shows only run for two seasons, both get canceled again uh, at the end of the, their second year, but this is back in the day when sitcoms would actually produce 30 to 35 episodes a season. I can't even imagine that. Yeah. It's so shocking because I feel like there were... I haven't seen every episode of The Addams Family, but I've watched it mm-hmm. so much, and the fact that there it was only two seasons long is insane to me. Sort of double back to Spirit writing free. A season on Netflix for that show is five to six episodes. I mean, that's it. Right. That's how we got to eight seasons in 2019 for a show that debuts in 2017. But again, because at the end of their two-year run, they each have, both the Munsters and the uh, Adams Family, they both have the magic number. They, they both have more than 65 episodes. And that's enough for, or at least back then, for syndication. All you needed was 13 weeks of episodes that you could run f- in a strip, you know, five nights a week. And that's like, that's enough. We can sell that to the affiliates and that sort of thing. And that's 
how the Adams family really became a thing. It just kept bubbling up in different forms. I mean, in 72, the inaugural season of the new Scooby-Doo movies, and they did a an episode where Velma and the gang met up with the Adams family. And, and what was kind of interesting is Hanna-Barbera got a lot of the, the actors from the, the 64 sitcom to come back and voice the characters. John Aston was back as, as Gomez. Carolyn Jones was back as Morticia. They even got Ted Cassidy to come back and, as Lurch. And Jackie Coogan was back as the voice of Fester. But it's like, here buried in the credits for this episode of the new Scooby-Doo movies is the voice of Pugsley was Jodie Foster future Academy Award winner, Jodie Foster. That's amazing. <laughs> that episode of the Scooby-Doo movies does so well. The very next year, CBS picks up a brand new uh, animated version of The Addams Family. Only runs for one season, and uh, both Ted Cassidy and Jackie Coogan come back to voice Lurch and Fester. And, but <laughs> the weirder aspect of this is because there was suddenly this resurgence in interest in The Addams Family... ABC shoots a pilot for what they call the Adams Family Funhouse, which was going to be a variety show like the Brady. You know, remember when the Bradys had a, their own variety show? Yes, I do. For animation fans, what was kind of cool about this is that Uncle Fester for this, uh, for the pilot, was played by Stubby K, who, if you know Roger Rabbit, that's Marvin Acme. Right. And in a Ghostbusters kind of cross the streams kind of way. They were looking for somebody special to, to play Pugsley, so they reached out to Butch Patrick, who had played Eddie Munster on The Munsters, so I have no idea what that means. <laughs> we jump ahead four more years. That did not go to series, by the way. We need to... That, that was... That was did, not, did not go any further than that special. Yeah, yeah, no. And in fact, the pilot is it's was so rarely seen. All you can find these days are sort of still shots of... of the cast sort of gathered together for it. I desperately want to see this, Drew, because the guest star for the pilotist variety show was Jim Neighbors. <laughs> so it's I love that that's, that puts you over the edge. You have to say. Somebody's got to have this somewhere. Anyway, October 77, we get a TV movie. We get a Halloween with the Animus family. And John Aston, Carolyn Jones, Jackie Cougar, and Ted Cassidy are back again in their old roles. And this is so successful that this actually spawns all of those horrible TV movies of the late 70s and 80s where you get, like, Escape from Gilligan's Island and The Return of the Beverly Hillbillies and I Dream of Jeannie 15 years later. By the way, I'm looking for a copy of the, the Adam's Family Funhouse. I do not need to see The Monster's Revenge, so you can keep those books. <laughs> so we jump ahead to... Uh, November of 91, and this is when we get the Adams Family live-action feature films with, with Raul Julia as Gomez and, and Angelica Houston and Christopher Lloyd as Fester. That's such a success that there's a brand-new animated series. So this one's done for ABC. John Aston is back again as the voice of Gomez. This, this drops the fall after the first Adams Family live-action film comes out. Then in November of 93, Adams Family Values come out, and I would argue, Drew, that was a better film than... Oh, I agree. You know, it's it's worth it alone for Joan Cusack as Debbie. Yeah. But for some weird reason, it does a fourth of the business of the first film. 
Paramount, which I guess had been eyeballing, you know, sort of the notion of, okay, we could maybe do one of these every two years or so. They kind of tapped the brakes on the development of the a third film of the series. And then when Raul Julia dies in October of 94, that pretty much puts a stake in the heart of that film franchise. But then jump ahead to September of 98 and Warner Brothers decides that they want to do it. Adam's Family Project. Oh, they want to do it as a direct-to-video project. So inspired by the Paramount movies, depending on who you talk to, they actually did reach out to a few folks, Angelica Houston and Christopher Lloyd, who weren't interested. And so what they end up doing is they recast. And so they do Tim Curry as Gomez and Daryl Hannah as Morticia. Evidently, Curry did an amazing job as Gomez, but... In one of these weird situations where the home video version comes out September of 1998, one literally one month later, a brand new version of the Adams Family sitcom that's been produced strictly for syndication starts airing on Fox, uh, the Fox Family Channel. Evidently, the direct-to-hit video thing that that Warner's did didn't sell all that well because why should I pay? For a new TV movie, you know, a directive, you know, a home premiere, when I've got this brand new show that's airing with the same set of characters. But and again, just to further out how bizarre this gets, the Adams Family thing for Fox Family Channel, John Aston is back again, only this time he's playing Grandpapa Gomez. Okay. And then finally, the franchise rests for about 10 years, suddenly comes back as a Broadway musical. Doesn't do all that well. I mean, it, it opened on Broadway with Nathan Lane as Gomez and Beat Me With as Morticia in uh, April of 2010 and closed on Broadway December of the following year. I was happy to see Nathan as, as Gomez because he's honestly my favorite part of Adam's Family Values. I don't know if you remember, it's one of the his very first film roles. He plays the desk sergeant at a police station. Yes. And he has two of my favorite lines in all of film, though. At one point, Gomez is ranting about his brother Fester having married Debbie, the babysitter, or the nanny. And Nathan's response is, who are you? What are you? Who moved the rock? And then to try to get Gomez to leave the police station, he, you know, he just whispers, just leave. Leave quietly. Leave now. Don't make me call Ringling Brothers. Only Nathan Lane can deliver those lines. Do you remember that in 2010 was also when Tim Burton was announced to be doing a stop motion <gasps> Adam's Family yeah. for Illumination? Yeah. And there's that wonderful uh, Twitter feed where they have the lost animated projects and they have not only concept art and shots of the stop action model, they actually have some footage that was shot for the Shadow Project. And it just kills me because Tim Burton... Doing the Adams family that I would pay to see. Tim Burton right. doing Dumbo. Drew, I can see that Blu-ray and DVD from from here in my house. It is gathering dust for a reason. It's just sort of like <laughs> that's just not something that interests me. And I feel bad because I've I've loved so much of what Tim Burton's done. And in fact, did you see just this week is the twenty-fifth anniversary of the release of Ed Wood? Yes. One of the best movies ever. That's a perfect marriage of sensibilities. An amazing group of performers who would go anywhere and do anything for Tim Burton. 
can you imagine what he would have done with the Adams family? It would have been pretty cool. Yeah. Well, anyway, all right. So, so bring us full circle again. We do now. We have our this feature length animated version of the Adams family out in four thousand and seven theaters on North America this week. And as we mentioned, it's going to be interesting to see what happens in weekend two with Maleficent, Mistress of Evil, out there. When you talk about the Adams family, so we have. The original series that was done for ABC by Filmways, by the way, that's the same company that did all of CBS's sort of hillbilly comedies, the Beverly Hillbillies and Petticoat Junction. Uh, we have the animated series for CBS done by Hanna-Barbera. We have the live action films that were done for Paramount in the early 90s, uh, that direct video project that was done for Warner's Entertainment, the second Adams Family TV series that was done for Fox Channel, the Adams Family uh, musical for, done for Broadway. And then we have our Adams Family feature film, uh, which was released in North America by MGM UA and is being handled by Universal Overseas. So I'm going to be kind of interested to see where the theme park rights for Adams Family eventually land. But if you're an intellectual property lawyer and you're somebody who f somewhere further down the line you're the guy who handles the Adam Family for the next iteration. Who knows when we'll show this? Just have this show up on Netflix, true. But we've got single panel con uh, cartoons that were done for New York, sitcom for ABC, animated series for CBS, two live action films for Paramount, direct to video for Warner's, syndicated for Fox, musical for the Weinstein Company, full length animated feature divided between MGM, UA, and Universal. I bring this up because anytime any one of these projects used the Adams Family theme song, they had to then turn around and pay MGM television because they bought Filmways back in the 1980s. So this impossible spaghetti-like rights situation. <laughs> I was trying to think, is there any other property like that out there that you can think of? Not that I can think of. That's had so many different... Mm -hmm rights holders and, and adaptations too in so many different forms. I'm sure there was a video game too at some point that we have not mentioned. I want to say there was a pinball game and I bet they had to pay the rights for the theme song as well. Anyway, uh, speaking for paying things, folks, we have to pause here for a commercial and when we get back, uh, Drew and I are going to talk about Primal and Toy Story 4. You and I talk a little bit about Gennady Tartakovsky's Primal, his new project for Adult Swim. You and I have now seen all five episodes. You got to see the first four in theaters. Right. Which I, I imagine having seen these in the, the comfort of my own home. How far down to the seat did you slink during some of these scenes, Drew? It was great. I mean, it was great to see it that big and that loud. Oh you know, it was... Yeah. No, no, I just, it, it for was, me, it was so fascinating because it was so well designed, so well animated, so brutal, so savage. I mean, you are five minutes in when the caveman character loses his family to a trio of not T Rexes, but large. There's some kind of dinosaur. Yeah. I was just sort of startled. I mean, I know. I know it's Adult Swim. I know it's after midnight, so you can, you can get away with a lot. But the way that they disposed of the kids, where I think at one point, one of the dinosaurs basically consumes the kid like he's popcorn shrimp. Right. Oh, my God. Yeah. It was great storytelling. It was beautiful design. You know, I, I stayed with it 
for all five episodes. And then, and you and I have discussed the fact that supposedly there's five more in the works. And what a cliffhanger though, right? That's it. Exactly. I think the last battle in the last episode, I don't know if I can actually get away with saying this in a a show where (laughs) a caveman befriends a T-Rex, but did it kind of stretch credibility for you? Sort of the Marvel sort of thing that happened in that last episode? No, I I think it's totally of a piece. I thought the whole thing was very pulpy, very... You know, Frank Frazetta, very Mobius, you know, a very, uh, you know, I mean, it is, it's as much a fantasy as it is anything else. So I I bought that last kind of moment. Yeah. I'm just curious as to what will happen. No, I agree. I agree. And what is the film that ends with the top spinning? Oh, Inception. Inception. Yes. (laughs) I wonder how many people are going to be watching the last few frames of Primal over and over again to, to see if there's, there's movement, so to speak. Yeah, it's an amazing accomplishment. It is. And I think, we, I, you know, it, and it's like pure animation. No dialogue, no fast cutting. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is just a beautifully told story. The first half of the fifth episode is so beautifully designed, so tranquil, such, you know, an amazing and wonderful character-based animation. You know, if you... You've stuck with the four episodes up until this point. You're seeing character beats paid off in that. And then for it to make that really hard right turn. Don't get me wrong. I'm back. When these five new episodes show up on Adult Swim, I'll be there. I may need to lie down in between them because it's like, it's savage stuff. Beautifully animated, but the blood really does fly. It's hard not to applaud the craft and... I want a toy of tooth and or spear is what the mm. caveman is called and fang is what the dinosaur is called. Mm. So I, I need figures of those characters on my desk as soon as possible. Okay. So okay. keep an ear out. This is Adult Swim and we eventually got a master shake. So That's true. If you hang in there, Drew. On the other hand, nobody has to ask for merch for Toy Story 4 because it's everywhere. This past weekend, Nancy and I finally sat down threw the Blu-ray into the machine and watched Toy Story 4. And I've been fretting about this movie for years since it was announced because, for me, Toy Story 3 landed so well. It was such a beautiful button on the series and had such a strong ending. And I didn't want them to go back to the well without a really good, strong story because the series had paid off so well. And... To have this be the film that was in production while Mr. Lasseter was having his issues and then he was forced out the door and, you know, this was the thing that was being completed during that whole period. I'd love to talk with somebody at Pixar about what story changes were made during the, you know, the time that John was outside the door or outside of the studio. Because I can't say it's the strongest film in the series, but I have to admit, I love the ending. This is going to sound weird to make this comparison, but I'm one of these people who is very forgiving of A Day with Wilbur Robinson because it has such an amazing ending. It's a film that wobbles all over the place and has some character stuff that I really don't think works, but it sticks a landing. There are large stretches of Toy Story 4 where, same thing, it just kind of feels like padding. I don't know if everything... In the antique store works or the whole 
RV out of control to get it back to the carousel thing seems kind of labored. But that scene up on the awning, spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen Toy Story 4 at this point, the last exchange between Buzz and Woody is good stuff. Yeah. It really does land. And it landed well. So can we just leave it here? I don't want in 10 years' time that... Somebody goes to the actor's home and wheels Tim Allen and, and Tom Hanks out to do Toy Story 5 or 6. You know, I just, I, right. I think, can we be done? Well, I mean, we're obviously not done because there's a series of forky shorts that are going to be on Disney Plus, as well as a Bo Peep-centered uh, short called Lamp Life. So, we're not done. <laughs> yeah, I guess not. And, and in fact, you were uh, uh, pointed out last week as we were sort of dummying together the show that... How to Train Your Dragon hasn't and isn't ending either, right? Oh yeah, there's like a what is it, a Christmas special that's coming there out? There we go. Or something. There we go. Yeah. Homecoming Day or, or, or something that effect it's it's got a subtitle like that. Uh, right. The folks who were working on Epic Universe, the third theme park. I I'm sorry, I can't pr- bring myself to call Volcano Bay the, the the third theme park. It's a water park. Right. <laughs> but anyway, the the third theme park. They are um one of the lands that's that's under consideration for that is uh, how to train your dragon themed area. And, you know, anybody who's seen Hidden World knows that well, the the dragons went back to the Hidden World and, you know, we were we're waiting for them to eventually come back. But evidently the thing about homecoming, this holiday special is so one day that the dragons can come back and visit. And evidently that's going to be the conceit of what's done for Epic universe that in much the same way that supposedly when you visit uh, Hogwarts in the wizarding world of Harry Potter or Diagon Alley, this is the one day that they've thrown it open to muggles. If you go to the village of Burke this is the one day that the dragons have come back, so you're, you're going to get to visit with them before they go back to the Hidden World. So I can just sense the excitement rolling off of you, Drew. No, I, I didn't even realize that thing about Harry Potter, though, that it was supposed to be when the muggles are allowed into the, the world. What's kind of funny about that is that as you walk into the Wizarding World, there is a sign that says, literally a metal sign that's hanging over the entrance that says, Mind the Spell Limits. Supposedly, if you talk with the guys at Universal Creative, that that's there for a reason, that they have used an enchantment to, you know, because normally, you know, Hogwarts Castle and uh, Hogsmeade Village is, is hidden away in the Scottish Highlands. It's there, but muggles can't see it. But the enchantment has been revealed or, uh, you know, uh, pulled away for this one day. And if there's a, a, a witch or a wizard who uses magic in an incorrect way on this day in Diagon Alley or Hogsmeade Village, the land is supposed to revert to what was there previously. So, you know, for example, if you, you know, you went to the top of the hill and and did that spell, it would be the Merlin Wood Village once again with the, the Royal Oak Tavern and the old Ice Dragon Fire Dragon, you know, as opposed to, to Hagrid's Coaster, which... You didn't get on this past trip either, did you, Drew? No, I did not, no. That one felt like tempting fate a little bit too much, yeah. Given the Jaws fans that exist on the planet, I, I bet there are folks who, you know, <laughs> trying to break the spell in diagonal because they want to get back on Jaws. And again, we are so far away from animation news at this point, so <laughs> let us pivot back to, and, and, and to bring, uh, you know, a special treat, tail end of the show here, uh, again, on the last two shows, Drew has been kind enough to share interviews that he did 
at the Frozen 2 long lead day. So we previously got to hear from Chris Buck and Jennifer, Jennifer Lee. Lee. Likewise, the folks who were in charge of the uh, design and visual effects end of things. And today we have our last uh, bit of audio. And who we're going to be listening to this time around, Drew? We're talking to Brittany Lee, mm-hmm. who is a visual development artist, and Griselda. I'm going to screw up her name. So just let uh, Sastra Winata LeMay. And she is a visual development artist. Mm-hmm. So two more great filmmakers about this movie that is uh, that people are a little bit excited about. I'm getting this sensation. <laughs> <laughs> I remember reaching out to you. The, uh, I went into my local Target when uh, Coco had just been available, uh, made available on Blu-ray and DVD. And here was the standee. The pull quote that they were using to try to convince Target folks was from Drew. That's true. So it was kind of cool to think that, wow, Drew's in a thousand Targets around the world, you know, <laughs> in North America right now. And if you walk into your local Target now, there is a display that is like 10 times the size of the Coco display. And it's all Frozen 2 merch. It's literally the first thing you see as you come through the door. In fact, if, if I were the, the Star Wars guys, I'd be a little ticked off because you right. have to walk deep into the store to find the, the Rise of Skywalker or the Mandalorian stuff. Whereas the Frozen stuff is right there, right in the front window. We still have 60 plus days before this thing opens in theaters. And here it is, front of mind, with all these consumers. But it's pretty much the color palette of the first film, the the blues, right. you know, that sort of thing. Whereas Frozen 2 is, this is a story that's really sort of set in, in autumn, right? The fall. Yes. They didn't necessarily, with this film, go with your cliched version of a fall. I mean, I'm, I'm looking out my window right now, at, you know, a fall here in New Hampshire. And I've got yellows, I've got oranges, I've got reds. But that's not what they, they decided to do with Frozen 2, is it? No, I mean, those are all very much apparent. But there there's also a lot of dark blues, mm-hmm. purple. You know, you're going to see some, some turquoise mm-hmm. there. And in this interview, you'll hear about what it was like sort of designing the new costumes for the characters. Because, you know, they've got to have new costumes, mm-hmm. Jim. I mean, come on. And, you know, what it was like that there were characters who were also sort of environments because there are these kind of spirit characters the water horse is going to be the big character if the merchandise is any indication. Oh, God, yeah. The knock is front and center. Let's listen to what Brittany and company have to say here. So can you talk about the kind of iterative process of designing this movie? You talked about how her dress was the 122nd design. <laughs> that yeah. one's going to make it. That one's going to make it Yeah, that, that's a headline, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> it's um, story grows. I mean... You know, they're they're writing the story. The story is not set in stone. You know, they're they're writing at the same time, and we're we're finding this new language as they're figuring out, figuring out the story at the same time. So, you know, and then we're also trying. You're also finding out new things. For example, that um, early on we designed Elsa that we want to reflect the story that is really serious, this big epic journey, and she's feeling heavy, and and. So we put her in a cape that is that's heavy, and then she stopped looking like Elsa. Right. Because, you know, she needs to look like Snow Queen. And then Anna, after I don't know, version like eighty or ninety, I think uh, at some point we we're like, okay, 
we have done, I think we've done enough. Why don't we step back and we look everything that we have done, you know, from Elsa and Anna and, you know, all the characters. And right. We'll see, like, what is it that we like about 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 her even like we bring in like costume from the first movie and right. we see what's working and then we sound like huh why don't we try like that one that costume and then put um Anna's language on the costume and it works it works mm-hmm. i mean how often are you going back to there's so much it seems you know for one movie there's still so much stuff even in between between frozen fever and the uh, Christmas special. Did you go back to look at those for inspiration, or or in, even in terms of just kind of keeping the continuity yeah. going? Okay, needing to know where we've been and you know what that has signified in the journey, mm-hmm. I think is important to just bear in mind. Um, I know that for me, for Elsa, that's a big thing. And for Into the Unknown, it was an area where I was bumping a little bit with the idea of putting her in something dark because. We, we knew that dark meant something in the world of Frozen already. And so if it didn't have a reason for narratively for her to be in something dark, um, it didn't feel right. And, right. And so the fact that the song came in and had this conflicting element to it made that make sense. Okay. But I don't know that it would make sense anywhere else in the mm-hmm. movie except for in this yeah. sequence. Well, you referenced that you had put her in red at one point and yeah. it didn't work. What what was the context for yeah, that? It's funny. Mike has tried to put her in red in every iteration of every piece of Frozen that I've worked on. He <laughs> actually tried to put her in red um, as a little girl. Okay. And um, the directors bumped on it in this, uh, the first movie because it, was, it felt too warm for her. Um, and I think he had actually requested that this um, this Into the Unknown nightgown be more cranberry more on the red end of the spectrum and we had gone through something with another costume already that Uh was kind of in the pink realm and trying to do that to reflect fall that it just wasn't going to fly so (laughs) so i was sort of suggesting well what if we do this where at least there's some blue in some amount of it and he was totally fine with it but yeah it, it just it's a balance. I think cranberry is his favorite. Yeah, he color. really loves it and he wants to get it in yeah. somewhere. But yeah. this is Mike Jambo. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, what was sort of was there something that proved to be really challenging that you thought was going to be kind of like a walk in the park? And was there oh, anything yeah. that was easy that you thought was going to be super hard? Oh, oh many, many, yeah. many, many. Okay. Times. This is something Anna's that jumps out. Hair. You. Okay. Um, um, Anna's hair, I have no idea it would be that challenging. What was so challenging about it? Uh, our, our program doesn't... Yeah. The, the tools yeah. to... The like, grooming, hair, yeah. Um, are counterintuitive to how mm-hmm. hair actually works, and especially if you're used to doing hair, mm-hmm. the language that you would use to describe, well, this is what this looks like, so this looks like it's a mm-hmm. curling iron coil, does not compute to tonic, and, and so mm-hmm. it's... And tonic is the tool. So, um, just getting a coil yeah. is like so hard. Impossible. Okay. <laughs> and, so hard. and we didn't know that going in. So, we're designing yeah. these waves because we thought that they mm-hmm. would look good in wind and yeah. do all perform beautifully. Yeah. And it turns out that waves are harder than just like actual coil. Yeah. Like little coils. Like okay. Juana's hair is easier yeah. than right. what it was done on mm-hmm. these girls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Was there anything that, that ended up being easier than you expected it to be? Uh, Elsa's nightgown died. Mm-hmm. I was just telling Coleco that I thought for sure that that was going to be 
difficult and have to go through a bunch of paces because it was in a song and a song costume is you know so important and so iconic but they looked at one pass of three designs the directors looked at one pass of three so as opposed to your 122 okay. three designs and Jen how does that make one. you feel <laughs> but sometimes it's because the directors don't know what they want so i think in this particular instance jen knew what she wanted for mm-hmm. into the unknown and she was like that one mm-hmm. i want that and we were done and good to go but i think yeah. and also because that scene is a lot of just Elsa. The song is just Elsa. Right. Everything else that is so much all of them together, it was hard to um, orchestrate figuring out what was the anchor. So we needed one girl, we have two lead girls. We mm-hmm. need one girl to lead and then the other one to match her. And so mm-hmm. going back and forth and figuring out which girl was ready first was the thing that made everything take so long because mm-hmm. We needed someone to buy off on one that we one. could play the other one off of. Yeah. Well, in, in another presentation today, we heard about the backgrounds and things, and and the sort of they call it like the visual cacophony of the forest. And are you guys sort of taking that stuff into in terms yeah. of your design because they have to stand out? And yeah. and what was that process like? Yeah. I think that was yeah. I, I, pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As far as, so it was different from the first Frozen because we had snow and so it was easy to anchor characters and make characters pop off of snow but mm-hmm. um against these brilliant yeah yellows and reds and mm-hmm. warm violets it's yeah i think they went to pretty neutral that's where they their characters yeah okay yeah so Just because there's such a saturated environment mm-hmm. to okay so Elsa's nearing, she's so bright, she neared white, and mm-hmm. Anna's got a black base, yeah. and so that helps them to yeah. pull forward, hopefully. Right. It seems like there was a lot more sort of like cross-pollination in terms of departments earlier on than normal, right? Yeah. Because you have characters that are also visual effects and, you know, yeah. also backgrounds. I mean, from a design standpoint, what kind of challenges did that sort of provide? Or was it kind of invigorating to be all on the same team so early? It was very, it. Yeah, yeah. It was very helpful for me because okay. there were things that I wanted mm-hmm. for Elsa, particularly her double capes. Um, <laughs> and the... Uh, we didn't know if we would get buy-off from the directors, but my husband was is the tech anim supervisor, so he's responsible for making sure that the clothes perform well. Uh-huh. So I Pretty could have him in the room and say, we can do this, right? And he goes, oh, yeah, this is fine. It'll be great. It'll be beautiful. So it was very helpful on my end to right. have yeah. everybody around. But mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like it's sort of a new, new territory for everybody. Yeah. Uh-huh. So much overlaps. Yeah. You know? And also, I mean... From a design standpoint, was there anything that you guys really wanted to push that didn't that got shot down or didn't work for for whatever reason? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it doesn't serve the story anymore. Then we just kind of like let it go. Yeah, huh. <laughs> I, I saw what you did there. Yeah. We were trying to update Elsa's braid for a bit, actually for quite a long time, um, because we knew we were going into the elements and we wanted to get see if we could get um, more looseness and so mm-hmm. more like strays to mm-hmm. be able to play in the wind. And what we discovered, because we thought this would be easy, we already had the braid, we didn't have to worry so much about construction, but we discovered that changing that silhouette at all made it look like it was a mistake. Like we were okay. we were dancing too close to this uncanny mm-hmm. valley realm, okay. and it just didn't 
look right. And so we could totally change her hairstyle. We could put her in a new hairstyle and she still looks like Elsa. But if we modified that braid in any way, it, it didn't work. And so that was a big lesson to learn. <laughs> well, what is it like designing things for this? I mean, Frozen is not just, this is not just a sequel, but it's a sort of cog in a massive machine that incorporates Broadway and theme parks and, and everything else. I mean, did you feel more pressure? Did you just sort of like try to get that out of your head? Or, or what, what is the process like, even on a design level, with all of that going on? Yeah. It's tough in a way because it, it's so different than mm -hmm. what it was on the first movie of just like the level of oversight, the level of stuff that needs to be all moving at the same time in order for it to all get out at the same time. Right. Um, but I think for me it was more focusing on the characters specifically and and the fact that we know them pretty well and um, just trying to do right by them and, and make decisions that feel appropriate for who they are. Right. That was kind of the centering piece of okay. it all. Um, and so if there was ever any amount of conflict, it was just re-asking that question to try to make it right. go well. Right. Are you guys excited about seeing your designs on little kids running around theme parks and things? Yeah, yeah. Because I think the, the costumes will be out before Halloween. Too. So there's a Are chance they, they could. Really? Yeah, I'm just. It, I'd be so shocked because they're so like, there's nothing before the movie right now. So I don't. Yeah, know they're doing a bit. They're doing a thing like Star Wars where all of the stuff comes out. I think in October. October. I need to know when. Uh, I think it's October fifth. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for knowing. Yeah, that. yeah. October is that what it is? Right. Uh, am I right? October oh, I'm right. Yeah. Okay. Yes, Triple Force Friday, right? It's oh. it's the Star War. It's Star Wars. Frozen and something else. They're oh, all really? pretty, yeah. Like at, oh, the at the same time. At, uh, in, in all consumer products, yeah. What? So Target. How yeah. do we not know this? Like how? Yeah. Is, how You'll do you know. know? Yeah. How do we not know? Because I, I need. I'm gonna stand in line for those special edition dolls. <laughs> yeah. I know the special edition dolls are the thing that it's like we're clamoring for. Is so. that? Did you guys help design them? No. So no. We, okay. <laughs> but they're like our little trophies of like. Mm -hmm. Look at this is part of what we did. So my I have a shelf full of them from the first movie. So oh, awesome! And they're so limited that you want to make sure that there's only like what two fifty, one to five hundred. I have no idea. October fifth. Okay. Do you have a favorite outfit? Um, depend on my mood. Okay. You know, if I want to be fancy or if I want to right. go on an adventure, like right. You know. Well, yeah, but I mean, is the hundred and fifty? 35th of Elsa, your, your, <laughs> is that your sort of favorite look of hers? Uh, or For that particular travel costume, I love that one. You did love uh, it, okay. Yes, okay. Yes, that one, uh, and Jen, because, I, I, you know, for a while too, Jen was like, oh, I don't know, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. And then uh, in one meeting, she said that, you know, I see her in black. I feel that black really um, says Anna. I see her in black and a little bit of gold. And then I think that's what she said, mm -hmm. right? So I put her in black and then a little bit of gold and then the deep cranberry that Michael loves. <laughs> <laughs> and then there you go, you know, as if, you know, like, yeah. I just pretend that's the first one that I made. <laughs> right. Do you like the outfit that you showed us though with the sort of faux leggings and yeah. that? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I, you were saying earlier, it's hard. It's like pick, picking your favorite child. Yeah. I, I don't know that I can, I love the capes, I love what we were able to do that I didn't think we would get, which was on her coat, her 
her epaulets, her her two capes, and then this like peekaboo open back that mm-hmm. I thought for sure would get shut down. But uh-huh. basically, the, since the cold doesn't bother her anyway, we can do that. Right. Um, that I really love that about that costume. But I think there are specific elements of mm-hmm. the different costumes that I love and I haven't actually seen them performing yet. So I mean, in the actual movie. So, right. Mm-hmm. That may shift once we see them in action. I, I don't know. I know. I'm gonna make sure, like all like waterproof makeup that like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you need to. So we really have to wait 60 days to see this thing, or? I know. I'm dying for it. I'm dying for it. Are they doing anything earlier? I mean, it used to be they they would at least start these things a week earlier at the El Capitan. I haven't heard anything about that. Yeah. I actually got to see Aladdin back in 92, a full month ahead of, of when it was released. But I had to buy a ticket to a fundraiser for the Museum of Modern, Modern Art in New York. Oh, wow. We're there in the lobby. And, you know, here's Glenn Keane. You know, I go up and, and talking with him. And it's like, you know, so what are you working on now? It's like, well, we're, we're working on Pocahontas. And, oh, what are you working on Pocahontas? And he's like... Pocahontas, I'm, I'm animating Pocahontas, and <laughs> and you know, then turn around and here's Eric Goldberg escorting Al Hirschfeld into the theater. It was uh, a pretty amazing night. But you weren't at the New York Film Festival screening of Beauty and the Beast, were you? No, no, that you know that one kind of broke my heart because I, I found out about it after the fact. So that was. When right. I found out about the uh, fundraiser for the MoMA, it was like, here, take my money. Speaking of taking my money, it's like, how long do we have to wait now for another Mission Impossible movie? Not in, We're not going to get it until 2021. Summer 2021. Really? Yeah, that's when Mission Impossible 7 comes out. Although if you saw the news about Jeremy Renner today, mm-hmm. it looks like he won't be making a return if uh, these allegations are correct from his ex-wife. Oh, so geez. we'll see how that plays out. Okay. Uh, well, re- but, remember, uh, you know, Jim Cummings, the voice of Winnie yeah, the Pooh, had true. an interesting week. And that's sometimes true. these things turn around, folks. But That's very true. We're, here's hoping for the best. But <laughs> okay. until, until 2021, you can listen to Light the Fuse, uh, which is my Mission Impossible podcast. I actually got recognized in... Disney World by a Light the Fuse listener. Oh, that's so Which cool. was funny. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Right. So there you go. Okay. So we have great guests coming up each and every week. So tune into that. These people don't just work on Mission Impossible movies. They have, well, you had that gentleman on who had done all of that work for the Lucasfilm Project, the Star Wars stuff. Just, I, I love how your show is kind of the Venn diagram of entertainment. It always has stories about other films and that sort of thing. Oh, yeah, you know. for sure. And and speaking of stories about other stuff, we've got the Disney Dish podcast I do with Len Testa. We've got the Universal Joint podcast, which I do with Dustin Fuse. The Marvelous Disney podcast, which I do with Aaron Adams. Looking at Lucasfilm, uh, which I do with Dan Zare. The I Want That podcast with Michelle Valladolid, who's in Florida right now. She's down there on a research trip for that podcast. And uh, Rub it in, rub I'm it in. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You got to see hyenas. I, I'm sorry. I've, that's true. That's true. I'm, I'm not going to feel that bad. <laughs> Head over to iTunes and rate and recommend not only, uh, you know, fine tuning, but also light the fuse. If you could subscribe to Bandcamp, that would be very helpful. Thank you for listening. And we'll be back soon with a brand new show. <laughs>